Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we speak with Kevin Driscoll, author of The Modem World, A Prehistory of Social Media, which takes a look at the physical and social technology that underpinned the DIY side of digital network evolution in the 80s and 90s, and as we discuss on the episode, share structures and lessons for the decentralized future of Web3. We're talking, of course, about the dial-up world of BBSs and Minitel, offering a rich alternative to how we imagine the origins of the internet. But before we get into it, a rare sponsored announcement. On Wednesday, June 15th, following the opening of Art Basel and just before the start of Documenta 15, the interdisciplinary think tank that is Studio Bun, an initiative of the Bundeskunsthalle Bun, will be hosting a live forum titled Contracts for the Earth. This one will challenge the Web3 pilled and the Web3 critical alike. Featuring design expert Julia Watson, diplomat and computer scientist Yosef Nassef, and a joint project by artist Renzo Martins, Set Art Tamasala, and Matthew Kasyama, in partnership with the Art Circle of Congolese Plantation Workers, this program will examine a selection of highly creative, socially experimental uses of NFTs. Yes, non-fungible tokens, here deployed as a tool for rebalancing wealth and power. If you're not already familiar with Studio Bun, let us put it on your radar. Studio Bun, Bun like the German city, B-O-N-N dot I-O. Check out the site to reserve tickets to this June 15th event or to tune in remotely, 7 p.m. CET, 1 p.m. EST, and or to stream past talks, including with Hito Styral, Eva Ilyuz, Amnesia Scanners, Villa Haimala, The Collective, Other Internet, and others. That's Contracts for the Earth, June 15th. Check out studiobun.io for tickets and more information. excited to be joined by Kevin Driscoll, who uh, just wrote this really great book called The Modem World, A Prehistory of Social Media, which is out this spring from Yale University Press. On the prehistory or really like the untold social history of computer-mediated life. Kevin is an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Virginia, which I love. And he's also the author with Julian Mayland of Minitel, Welcome to the Internet. Kevin is also part of New Models and is active on the New Models Discord. So we're like super thrilled in this multi-dimensional coming together. I think you guys also maybe share some prehistory, which I didn't realize till after I even asked you, Kevin. Yeah, oh, that's funny. We, we both DJed in Boston in the two. I don't know. I mean, we probably met in 2004, something like that. Yeah. I think. Wow. Yeah. Lone Wolf. Bloghouse. No, it's pre-bloghouse, actually. <laughs> pre-bloghouse. This was still open format, vinyl, vinyl days. True archaeology. I remembered asking you if I should get Serato. <laughs> like a, a million years ago, I was like, is that like worth it? It was worth it. Did you get it? I did. Yeah, it was totally worth it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kevin, what did we miss in your biography? I think you got the key topic. My research is all about popular cultures of computing. 
And that has unfolded in lots of ways, but for me, mainly in identifying and trying to trace alternative or forgotten or neglected histories of social communications. Well, I have to say, as somebody who thinks a lot about the structures or has like some idea of what the history of the internet is, I learned a ton from your book. And I was thinking maybe we could start off with a question of what are some of your earliest memories of being online and what shape the internet took? It's a great question because it's a big part of the motivation for this book in particular. I assumed that a book like this already existed. I was just gonna go to the library and get it and then cite it and like move on. And there just was not very much, especially in the scholarly dimension, like looking specifically at these more grassroots dial-up DIY kinds of systems. And my personal experience started with these sorts of local networks, dial-up bulletin board systems. And ongoing in this research is like, a kind of dance with my own personal history. But I have a couple memories that really stand out. And so one is like, I grew up in Massachusetts. So right off the bat, Massachusetts, like Virginia, are places where there already was a lot of infrastructure for doing computerized communications. And so there just were systems and networks and things happening in the news that I wouldn't have encountered if I lived somewhere else. So in my town, I was a part of a community of gamers who went to like a gaming shop to do tabletop role-playing games and war games and things like that. And the people who ran the shop were my friend's parents. They kind of ran it like a clubhouse. So you would pay a monthly membership fee, you got a membership card, and then you could like sign out the tables on the calendar. So those folks decided to create a bulletin board to kind of extend the shop into this new online space. And when they did that, they just automatically made accounts for everybody who had a membership card. And you didn't even need a computer to participate because they just put a computer in the corner of the shop. So I was part of this online community before I owned a modem. And like a bunch of other folks that I was friends with from school were also there. So we might've gone into mud or like argued about things on the bulletin board in the conferencing sections, but there wasn't this notion that you had to like be a computer person to be there. Right. You were there because of your interest in games or like fantasy and science fiction or whatever else was going on. A lot of people playing metal tapes and stuff in the store. And then that was paired with the distribution of all these starter kits like CompuServe, Free Hours, Prodigy, America Online. So when my family got a new computer, that it came with a modem by default. And that only really started in the mid 1990s in the US. We experimented and I like ran up a crazy bill on CompuServe the first month that we had it and it got taken away <laughs> immediately. But that was enough time to like expose me to other local bulletin boards. Those two experiences of this totally deterritorialized global system of CompuServe and then this like intensely local system where I knew where it was hosted. Like I'd seen the computer that ran the software that the Bolton board was on. That really sets the scope for this project of like, how do we have a history that like encompasses all of those experiences and what is there on the more intensely local side that we never quite recover in these systems that would come later. Yeah, and I think when we tell this history of the internet, we don't really know how we get from 
military industrial infrastructure to Facebook. It's blurry. So I think something that your book does really well is it digs into the human side of it. I wonder actually, Dan and Julian, do you remember your first memories? Because I don't know where we are generationally. Yeah, I'm not quite BBS. I'm not quite that old, but I was on AOL and I guess I think my parents had Prodigy and, and CopyServe in like 92, 93, 94. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time going on like the World Wide Web proper and just clicking a lot of links and having this feeling that I had like seen a lot of it or like gotten like really deep into the internet. Like that had, I remember that moment of there being this wider non-gated. Yeah. I remember that transition very specifically. So Yeah, totally. What about you, Julian? Um, I was actually getting the timelines mixed up. I, I realized for a while because hackers came out in 95 and I remember after I really wanted to get on the World Wide Web, but I must have had AOL before that. In seventh grade, my classroom got not quite raided, but the cops came and arrested a bunch of the kids because a kid in my class got really deep into AOL had been phishing people's passwords and then knew this exploit that for some reason this bug auto-filled all the credit card information. He was carding like PS1s and shit and he got arrested for carding. Other kids got in trouble for (laughs) accepting stolen goods and that was all like one year of the internet breaking, I guess. But my dad had Mondo 2000 subscriptions and wired subscriptions. Right. So the whole cyberspace world, I, I had been very curious about. Well, actually, maybe this is a point of clarification. I said a few things, World Wide Web, cyberspace, the internet. There's a genealogy to this. Yes. Do you want to just take a second and organize this for us? Because it might help. Yeah. One of the like ongoing questions in the book is, what did people mean by internet at different points in time and depending on where they lived and where they were positioned in terms of their age or like socioeconomic status? So 1995 is the turning point where the internet becomes our global term for getting online. Prior to that, internet would be kind of a more narrowly defined term and like information, superhighway, cyberspace, all these other terms are all in circulation at the same time in the early 90s. And it's only like, through the constant interconnection of networks that they all become internet. Right. And there is something cool linguistically about it, which is internet is the network of networks. So every time a new network gets hooked onto the internet, it vanishes because it just becomes the internet. It like the internet swallows everything that touches it. But for people who are really deep in it, internet would definitely have had a more particular meaning at that time. That would be in that genealogy you mentioned connected to like military research and university networks and things like that. And AOL, CompuServe, Genie, The Source, Prodigy, The Well, like bulletin board systems, they were considered separate. And there were gateways and things that transmitted messages and files across them. But internet is like one other term. And by and large, most people had no access to the internet. And thinking about literature like Mondo 2000, they will talk about the net a lot. Like these things happen on the net, but they don't mean internet necessarily when they say the net. They just mean like Mm. being online with other people. And that could be happening on AOL or CompuServe or Usenet or something else. But they don't necessarily mean like the TCP IP internet with ARPA funding, da 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 da, like that thing that we sort of take for granted. So moving your perspective back and like looking forward, you get this like much more open possibility 
of what this thing could mean. And so I like really adopt those terms from science fiction, like the net and matrix and the grid and those kinds of terms, because I think they evoke more of the sense of openness and possibility, but also borders that existed between these networks. And even the way you traverse those borders would remind you that you were moving. Like you had to tell net from this machine to this machine. There'd be like a little bit of waiting as you your connection jumped over to the other one. And the thing that's so remarkable about the hyperlink is that everything was like one click from everything else and you could see it all inside of a browser. And that like melted away the notion that you were moving across networks of networks mm -hmm. and it seemed to be like all one thing. Like in the beginning of 1995, home computers couldn't just go on the internet. They didn't have the necessary software. You'd have to get TCP IP, which is like the protocols that run the internet and install them on your computer. And Microsoft didn't even really release that with the initial version of Windows 95. It was only later when you got Internet Explorer that they had to send it to you. This is all so arcane, but it does reveal like there was a lot of hurdles to get onto the Internet as a regular person. But when Microsoft did introduce TCP IP and Internet Explorer, they put the browser like icon on the desktop and it just said Internet. <laughs> so if you like clicked Internet, you got the web. And that's in some ways like yeah. the origin of that Amazing. ambiguity. Was the term online already settled? Like, was that something that has existed for a while? Oh yeah, for sure. Online is is like a 70s term of getting okay. onto like online databases and time sharing systems. And this notion of like, is the machine on or offline? Although most people would have no firsthand experience of it at all. But there is like a whole parallel world of data communications that involves like building Visa and MasterCard networks. That's something like Lana Swartz writes about in, in her book on money media. Right. I have this memory of you're suddenly online and then you kind of don't know where to find people once you're there. So there's this really strange feeling where you're like, I'm suddenly connected to the world and I feel like I'm standing in the middle of Death Valley. I can kind of see things in the distance, but I really don't know where the people are. I don't know how to find my friends, which is kind of interesting because when we think of BBS boards or even your initial example, it starts from this social place. But I also learned from your book how BBS boards actually work, like the social technology that's necessary. So could you map that out briefly? Like, how that system came to be? Sure. Yeah. So BBS is bulletin board system, and that's the most common term for it. But in the early days, it was very clear to people that that meant like computerizing the community bulletin board, just like the regular cork pin and paper bulletin board that you'd see like on university campuses. And first groups that really embraced it were like computer enthusiast clubs, local groups. And they might have a monthly meeting or something like that. And so the bulletin board would extend the like monthly meeting into an everyday kind of interaction and also create an archive. So there was the kind of blurriness between like, are these files or messages or what is this? And the way it worked was that one person would volunteer to make their computer the host. And it's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around this, but these computers can only do one thing at a time. So <laughs> You can't like run a BBS and use your computer for other things. It has to be dedicated to that for most of this history. So starting in the late 70s, when the computerized bulletin board idea starts to spread, it's like one person has a computer and they attach it to a phone line and it has a modem. And the modem is like this device that is totally fascinating to me because it takes data and turns it into sound. And that gives them a way to take advantage of the existing infrastructure of the voice telephone network and send data 
in the same bandwidth that would be normally used by the human voice. So the ones and zeros of any transmission that would happen over like a serial data line have to be turned into sound. So I think of the modem as a kind of musical instrument that translates like a stream of data into sound, sends it over the telephone line or in some cases like a radio connection, and then to another modem that will turn it back into data and send it to a machine. So the simplest form of a BBS is like one computer is just hanging out there on a telephone line waiting for calls. And when calls come in, there's a program that automatically answers the call and then tries to start sending text back and forth with the computer on the other end. And you know, you're really using someone else's computer. And usually there's a menu that pops up with like a few choices, like read new messages, send a message, leave a message for the sysop, chat, download files, or log off. And then later there's games and other things. But by and large, when we talk about BBSs, we're talking about like a round robin kind of social interaction where one person at a time gets on, they read the new messages, maybe they post a message, then they log off. And while they're on, it's busy, like other folks can't get on. And so in the course of a day, only so many people can be online during that time. By the late 80s, there's more like multi-line boards and things like that. But this idea is like someone volunteers to be the host And they're kind of, I think of it as like a house party that you can come over and use my computer and we can trade files or messages on it and it'll just be on my phone line. And that's, that's all it is. It's humming away in a closet or in my kitchen or somewhere in my home. And it's kind of locally determined because at the time you had area codes and if you are calling locally, it was 25 cents or whatever it was for a local call. Yes. But if you were calling California from Virginia, then you'd be paying a long distance call. So just one image that stuck in my head and made this feel extra real is that the, the earliest modems, like you'd literally put the handset of the phone Mm -hmm. on top of this little like speaker (laughs) and microphone. And so you were just like putting your phone basically up to another phone handset and it would just send the, it wasn't like you plugged it into your phone jack. It was I mean, literally sending the sounds back and forth through the yeah. same receiver you would talk and listen through. Totally. Which is just so uh, wild. You could probably have TCP IP over literal cups on a string, right? Yeah. The so they sent software <laughs> over radio and uh, some guy in England did that in the early 80s too. Yeah, there was a TV show on public broadcasting in the UK that was a just like general interest computer TV show. And at the end of the show, when the credits were rolling, they sent a program. And so you could like hold your you Sinclair yeah. like PC and you tape it and then you could play the tape Wait, back into the this? computer. That's cool. That's probably like early mid eighties. What? No yeah. way. I mean, I know there's this misremembered history of Steve Jobs inventing the internet or something, but when he has the Apple computer say hi, you're like, well, these networks were already saying hi, so to speak. It wasn't like he just spontaneously mm-hmm. invented that. That was already something very much in the ether, you know, before that. Also, theoretically, there was something, I think it maybe had to do with Stuxnet or some other like state cyber weapon, but the way they infected air-gapped computers would be to send very high-pitched, like above human hearing sounds through the speakers of the computer into the microphone of another computer. That may be an (laughs) urban legend, but you could theoretically still send programs over sound waves to a computer. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I should note also, there is like a really clear structural gap at this time, especially in the 80s, where they are not using TCP IP because TCP IP was made for big 
institutional computers like university labs and workstations, those folks were not interested in PCs and like home computers at all. And so if you had a home computer, that would be like something on the side from what you did. There were other protocols, most of which were created by amateurs and hobbyists for doing the connections between these systems. And they built on even deeper tradition of protocols used by teletypewriters and newswire services and things like that, which were very well documented, you know? So even within the world of like home computers, there's a lot of problems getting data to move from one place to the next. Like if you had a floppy on your Apple computer and I had a Radio Shack computer, they might not work together. It would be kind of annoying to get the files. So BBSs even became kind of like a commons for owners of different computer types to be able to trade data with one another without having to use cassettes or floppies or other kinds of things. But the bigger structural gap, which is like significant to how we misremember the internet, is that throughout the 80s, everything we call internet that comes from the like ARPA history is very institutional. It's like universities or big tech firms, private industry and telecoms and things like that. But it's not the computer sitting on your desk. It is like a big institutional machine that costs $10,000 or something like that. And those are just not accessible to everyday people. They're not objects of hobbyist interest. They're not like a space of amateur innovation. And so that's part of why the BBS history and the broadly speaking, like internet history are so parallel because the people who had the authority to speak about what the internet is, they just didn't even really know about what was happening on the grassroots side because they were in an institutional context where they had had internet access through a mainframe or a workstation or a time-sharing system or something for years. Hmm. And if you have that, you may not be that motivated to get a PC and do all of the things that are necessary to get the PC to talk to other PCs. So I do think there's like a really important part here about this like structural difference between the home computer user and then the people who use computers at work. And that is a big problem because that folds forward into how we talk about the internet and who gets to talk about what the internet should be and what it's for, which really is like the purpose of writing a book like this is to get us to see how people on the grassroots played such an important role, not just in their technical contributions, but in defining what like online community is going to be. You do a great job in the book in drawing a parallel between the post-millennial web to social network structures and the ARPA conception. And I think you also tell this anecdote where you speak about people using mainframe technology for social communication, but that they actually couldn't record that. Would you want to just characterize the ARPA user and maybe draw that parallel? Sure. So the political economy of ARPANET is really unusual. I mean, it's like the Advanced Research Project Agency is funding a whole bunch of different computer research around the United States in the late 60s. You can imagine these like supercomputer kinds of systems dotting the landscape. And the goal of these networking projects is like, how do we make better use of these resources we're creating? So people at other universities should be able to connect to those machines over some kind of network and run programs on them and get the results back. So it's like, you're still thinking about computers as like a rare, expensive resource and you wanna make them available to lots of different people. And that motivates a lot of networking research throughout the 70s. What's so fascinating is that that resource sharing, like astronomers sending data sets or something, that's important. But the thing that 
everybody is so into and that's using all the bandwidth is email. <laughs> and so the ARPANET researchers, it's like a big reason people wanted to get onto ARPANET is because that's where the action was for like these emerging fields like computer science. That if you wanted to know what was going on in between conferences or like journal publications, you had to get on these email lists that were spreading around. And we've known that about that history since the mid 90s. Like the best book on this is called Inventing the Internet by Janet Abate. And I think the first edition is like 1997 or 1998. And it's based on research she started in the early 1990s when the internet was definitely like not a space of popular culture activity. The big distinction with these dial-up bulletin board networks is the reason they exist is to talk to other people. It's not like a surprise twist ending. Mm -hmm. It's like you created this to extend your community that already is there. So I think that is like a really key part of it. And the reason I say it's political economic is because the people who are working on the ARPANET side to keep the money coming, they have to write reports of what's going on and they like document all of the purposes. And so a very important early mailing list on ARPANET is called SF Lovers. It's like a science fiction discussion group. And there's some discussion on SF Lovers of like, well, maybe we should get some science fiction writers to get on here. We'll hook them up with an account some way and then we can like discuss the writing and stuff like that, which isn't so outlandish because there's lots of interactions between folks on the tech engineering side and science fiction. But then there is this reasonable concern of like, well, what if folks in Congress find out that we're appropriating this money, but we're actually like talking about science fiction on here that could <laughs> compromise our budget. It's like, there's all these considerations they have. Whereas the bulletin board system people, they're paying their own bills. I'm sure they would like to have a totally like awesome Unix system with 10 phone lines and stuff coming in. But at the same time, they're not accountable to these larger institutional forces in the same way that the state-sponsored systems are. Totally. You could extrapolate that to the way that social media networks work, where they're accountable to shareholders, they have to have certain data points. Mm -hmm. We were even speaking to a friend of ours in the music industry who said that data rules programming so intensely that they actually mess up artist schedules just to make sure they can get clean data to see how well an artist is performing at X venue and how X fast the tickets sell out exactly. without an opening act being announced right. versus with an opening act being announced. Yeah, and I don't, I'm not trying to like say that the things that happened on ARPANET aren't interesting because they actually are super fascinating. Like a lot of the early implementations of TCP IP are like grad students working on a summer grant. There's like unusual collaborations that emerged around it, public-private partnerships. There's a lot of like really novel social formations that happened around that project that wouldn't have been possible in other contexts. And so that's why sometimes when people talk about it, it's just like that military network. It's like, well... Culturally, like in every sense, it's different than whatever stereotype you have in your mind of military work. And that's why a lot of people who worked on it, they would like really push back on some of that characterization of it as being military. Hmm. But at the same time, we know that like in the 1980s, the thing that we would call the Internet later, ARPANET is just one component of that. And eventually ARPANET is decommissioned and there's other subsequent networks that take it over. So the thing that is like the net of the 80s, like the internet, is about university networks, which are coordinated regionally. That's a history that's really not written in any substantial way either. So there is like, even within the bounds of like the case that I'm putting in opposition, there is still like unknown components of the story that probably have like really interesting features to them too. I mean, 
of course, there's so much focus and talk today on uh, both sides of the American political spectrum are kind of increasingly feeling radicalized. And I thought it was really interesting in your book. Maybe Tom Jennings is a good person to talk about here. I guess he describes himself kind of like a gay punk. And there was really a lot of queer people tied to the early BBS communities. Uh, And then there was also early scares and concerns about neo-Nazis and right-wing extremists using these networks too. I mean, you can't imagine that, you know, this was a powerful medium that was kind of out of the public eye that enabled marginalized people or radicals or outsiders of all shapes and kinds. Uh, Even looking at textfiles.com, which I, I believe you, you said was a big part of the research you did. I mean, reading some of the files there, it's like shocking and like totally wild, unhinged, either erotic or drug literature. So maybe you could talk a bit about how countercultural, but also just marginalized fringe identities were always integral to the emergence of online communities and social networks. Yeah. Okay. So the first way I would think about it is, This is a new medium that is defined on some level by its accessibility. And so anybody who's excluded from the dominant media systems can turn to it and try to adopt it for whatever purposes they have. That could be neo-Nazis trying to avoid censorship, which is one of the cases that I wrote about in the book. But it's also lots of people who are just like marginalized in their everyday existence who are seeking community. And it's really hard to talk about them in the singular because it is such a like multiple moment where people could be living in the same town completely unaware of each other. This is like an online world that is absent of any kind of search engines. There is no central directory service like Yahoo. There is no DNS. There's no like discovery in this context beyond word of mouth. And so word of mouth networks are hugely important. We know, for example, of the existence of neo-Nazi BBSs, but we actually can't meaningfully compare them to contemporary networks because we don't know. Did one person ever dial them or one million people dial them? Like, we just don't have that kind of information about them. So that's something like I struggle with in the book a lot. But one thing that's abundantly clear is that queer people are everywhere in this online space. And bulletin board systems around the country are explicitly coded as queer spaces or otherwise made clear that they're queer friendly and queer people are highly visible. So in a moment where queerness and like gay life is marginalized in everyday media forms, being like television, film and other places, you go online and you have to be comfortable with this encounter with queer life. It is a everyday part of these spaces, not just on gay boards, but like broadly speaking, I think like Tom Jennings' unmatched contributions to BBS culture is like a nice example of what was happening broadly in the system. So to say like two words about that, what's so important about Fidonet is that it's effectively a people's internet. It is a network of bulletin board systems and it's highly, highly decentralized. And it's something that was built from the ground up almost totally by amateurs pretty explicitly in conversation with the history of amateur radio, of like thinking about how do we move messages and really how do we get around these expensive long distance calls? Because as we talked about before, in the United States and in Canada and, and some other places, calling locally was flat rate for most people. So you didn't 
pay extra to make a local call, but you paid extra to make a long distance call. And in fact, it was actually pretty hard to predict what the cost was going to be because the tables that came up with the rates were pretty complex. So unless you're calling the same person time and again, you might not know what kind of bill you were racking up. So the simple explanation of what FidoNet does is that every computer that's a member of a FidoNet would have a list of other computers and their phone numbers that were in FidoNet. And at the very latest point in the night where phone rates were cheapest, your computer would automatically wake up and dial a few adjacent machines and just sync up your message board. So if you had a few topic areas that were like networked topics, then they would you would just get all the new messages from that adjacent board, put them on your board and do the same thing. And so in a couple of days, you could like sync up the whole network because these messages would eventually make their way around the whole network. It's like a slow blockchain. Yeah, I mean, it really is like a model for a functioning decentralized messaging network. And it produced a global network, whereas most of our bulletin board system stories I'm telling in this book are based in North America. FidoNet has a much longer history in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe and in parts of China that are not as well documented as what I know here. So whereas it's an object of hobbyist fascination and retro computing nostalgia for a lot of people in the US, for people who are living in Poland, people who are part of it, it's remembered as like kind of symbolic of a liberated communication space, like a post-Soviet communication space that's operated from the ground up. And it has this different kind of memory associated with it. So there's something really interesting there. And if you talk to the folks who are organizing FidoNet in the US, they don't actually have that much to tell you about what was happening because the very technique of networking was decentralized. So you could build your own new models net and use the FidoNet technology and never interconnect with FidoNet itself. And so by the early 90s, there's actually a bunch of parallel networks who are operating at the same time that are organized by different groups of people. Like there's a, a network that was made specifically for trans folks, for and by trans folks. And it's smaller comparatively to FidoNet, but it's much more purpose-driven. And there's organizational goals about how it's put together and who gets to be part of it and, and whatnot. I also noticed that this era of BBSs was also concurrent with the AIDS crisis. And I saw on textfiles.com too, there was a, a lot of uh, writing about AIDS, speculation, conspiracy theories, but also advice and fact sheets. Did BBSs play a sort of integral role into the right to try activism around that time? Uh, or just in general, what yeah. role did BBS culture have on gay and lesbian like acceptance and pushback against Reagan era laws? Yeah, like what was the cultural intersection there? Yeah, it's a great question. In the book, I talk a little bit about systems that offered support and access to information. And so there's a network called Aegis, the AIDS Education General Information System that was overseen by sister Mary Elizabeth Clark. And what she was doing was kind of running an interface between government databases and this amateur network. So like replicating publications and reports and things and trying to provide access to information. I mean, another thing we take for granted at this moment is like being able to search online for information about health things that we have where and people who found out that they were positive for HIV may not have had a health provider that they could even ask questions to so the production of these bulletin boards sometimes was just to like put people in touch with resources and and provide access 
In other cases, it's places for people to talk to one another. So a more recent article than this book, Bonnie Ruberg and Kat Brewster, who are researchers at UC Irvine, have a more recent publication about the part of a bulletin board system called Backroom that was an area called Survivors. And that was a section of the bulletin board system to talk about HIV AIDS. And that production of like space where it's acceptable and encouraged to talk about the experiences of dealing with the disease either firsthand or through family and friends was really an important part of it. It's interesting we think of like blue light or we think about like bodybuilding.com. These are these, they're not bulletin mm-hmm. boards, but they are probably closer to yeah, being, there's PHP one. Bulletin boards. Yeah, they're PHP bulletin boards, I guess, that like remained yeah. even parallel to the rise of web two. I mean, bodybuilding.com still exists. Blue light still exists. I mean, in various different forms, but because they were, I think you, this thing you just said, they produced a space and this idea of the internet as a space rather than a thing and um, like that you can step into. And it was really critical. I think we underestimate how important that must have been to the opening up of social ideas, the liberalizing of certain conceptions of what's okay and what's not in society over the past 30 years. Yeah. You know, there's a really great online archive of queer digital history. That's queerdigital.com. And the curator of that system, Avery Dame Griff, sent me an amazing video that is of a cable access show where John Larimore, the sysop of the Gay Lesbian Information Bureau in DC, like walks you through how to log into the system and what to do when you're there. And the camera is showing the screen of his PC and you can see him using the computer contemporaneous with the system's peak of activity. And even the name of the bulletin board is so interesting because I think of this like hand-in-hand role of information and communication in the creation of these networks and like gay lesbian information bureau it sounds like it's gonna be a database and it totally is but then when you log onto it you can chat with other people there's message boards they have offline hangouts at bars every so often so information and communication kind of go hand in hand and in the case of uh, the aegis network where they were circulating hiv aids information They also created a website. The website functioned more like a collection of documents and reference materials. And then the bulletin board is like the space where you can chat with other people. So that's kind of another piece of this like broader history that these things don't like march in a line like a parade and you get BBSs and then the web comes afterwards and then whatever. It's like they're always existing on top of each other. And there's numerous bulletin board system communities that like bodybuilding.com, there's lots and lots of message boards with 20 years or more of continuous interaction. I mean, the population might change or the purpose or the themes might change, but there's a lot more continuity in internet communities than we really acknowledge most of the time when we talk about the past. There was a line in your book that I thought was, well, darkly funny. (laughs) Students' eyes glazed over as I tried to get them to marvel at TCPIP, but they lit up when we talked about HIV, AIDS support groups, Afrofuturism, and cyberfeminist e-zines. So I am wondering how much was that actually representative quantitatively compared to, let's say, normie nerd culture. And of course, I think we should remember that white male nerds, like that was a in pop culture and everything very marginalized back then too. So you don't necessarily have to be one from one of those listed groups to be considered that back then. But I'm wondering how much of it was this versus, let's say, normie. Yeah. So this is a fascinating problem, like historical problem, right? because also we don't have hardly any data about this. Right. For a few years, the U.S. Census asked people if they used BBSs and we could make some guesses about 
that and like put the pieces together. And so mm-hmm. we don't really know, but I think we can make a pretty strong assumption that a big chunk of the activity is just like exactly what you said, like computer nerds, like folks for whom, I don't know, running like fractal software on Tuesday and then trying to figure out how to run a BBS on Wednesday and running Doom on Thursday. They just want to use their computer. So they're doing computer stuff. That could be the majority of the activity. And that's okay because we also can see these outlying cases and how kind of thriving those communities were as a way to to kind of like provoke our imagination that like with those relatively limited resources, people built these really amazing communities. And that may not have been universal, but it is something that should be recognized. And I think one of the important parts of the work is to identify and celebrate it. So I think what I'm getting at at that kind of darkly comic part is when you're trying to correct a problem in history, there is a risk of overcorrection. So you're like, yes, ah, you thought it was all like surveillance and military research. No, it was totally all queer <laughs> activists. It's like, okay, obviously that's, that's like not exactly what was going on. But that doesn't mean that those communities were not like hugely influential in ways that we're not going to characterize with survey research, or we're not going to get at it with like sales of software or some of the other things that leave traces behind. Instead, we have to look to the stories that people tell or their memories and prompt them to surface them. So like another thing that happened to me a lot in this research is I'd be like, making my way around the web, looking for people talking about bulletin boards. And anytime bulletin boards appear in the news or on like hacker news or like a techie website, there'll be a comment of someone who's like, oh man, I wish I could go back to the days of like dialing into my bulletin board, but I'm sure I'm the only one that remembers that. And there's a way that the neglect and like oversight of these histories left people feeling that they were smaller in scale than they were, Hmm. like underestimating Hmm. their impact. So my best estimate, and I think this is pretty conservative, is we're talking about 100,000 bulletin boards in North America serving about two and a half million people. So that's pretty big. And it actually rivals much better documented networks and commercial services well into the 1990s. Do you have any sense beyond the United States how big the reach was? Well, I wanted to also ask about Minitel, which I think was its true. Uh, yeah, own I mean, kind also, of system. That's also uh, true. But maybe we can, yeah. But yeah, how big was this kind of activity um, yeah. outside of the U.S. in Canada? Yeah, so I focus on North America for the reason that the North American telephone numbering system was integrated from Canada to parts of northern Mexico and into the Caribbean. And so that's why the scope of the project is North America, because you didn't have to talk to an operator to make the call. Calling internationally to do a data connection internationally was (laughs) not a common thing to do. So the European histories are a little different in part because the region, like the actual geography is broken up. And so there is different administrations over those periods. You don't have this like vast single telephone network that's like bringing everybody together. And the standard billing was really different. So most people in Western Europe, at least, didn't have flat rate local dialing. So they didn't get that intense like local bulletin board system culture because every call was going to cost something. And so there is like a little bit of a higher barrier. But at the same time, there are cultural forms like the demo scene and tracking and Amiga music making and some of that kind of stuff that flourishes in the context of Europe in part because, I don't know, this is kind of a guess on my part, but it seems like 
console gaming in the US changed the shape of personal computing, whereas gaming culture in Europe tended to be on-home computers like the Amiga and the Atari ST, which could be appropriated to also dial bulletin boards or make music or do demo scene programming and things like that. So like console gaming is like turning a computer into an appliance for like playing games, whereas a computer that can play games like Amiga, but it's still a general purpose computer can be then used for other things like music and art and community and things like that. So yeah, there is a different way of looking at it. And I think some of the best work around that, that talks about bulletin board systems are histories of cracking like software piracy networks, demo scene programming, which is like a kind of competitive computational art form, all of which relied on bulletin board systems as their like principal communication medium well into the late 1990s. There's a chart somewhere in the book where I show like the peak of Fidonet activity is somewhere in the mid 1990s. But if you separate out North America from the rest of the world, the rest of the world keeps on going up while North America starts to decline. And there's a lot packaged into that statistic about like how consumer internet access started to spread in the US versus other places. But I think it is telling that there's much more to say about these kinds of grassroots networks uh, once you start doing comparative global perspectives. I mean, a side note, but I'm interested how the computing of the early 90s, desktop publishing or whatever, produced this small magazine phenomenon where, okay, it's difficult to make a digital connection, but we can create this small, glossy covered, very aesthetically rough find publication and take all the stuff we're thinking about and send it to New York and send it to Tokyo and send it to Paris. So there's this interesting air gap thing that happens with still technology based because you needed to have graphics processing or whatnot to be able to do these layouts that look professional. But we have to bracket that for another (laughs) another conversation. (laughs) Well, I was going to say like there is really interesting work like regionally about bulletin boards and other online systems. So there's a kind of a bulletin board system in Amsterdam in the 90s called the Digital City or the Digital Stad that was revived recently and the data was collected and people could go to a museum and log in with their old password. Oh, wow. And that system has been archived also in contemporaneous like home video of the time and some television coverage. And so you can look up the Digital City Amsterdam and see the aesthetics of it, which are totally amazing. They look like 90s CD-ROM wow. art, not like text mode art. But this kind of in-between, it's not the web, but it's definitely hypertext informed, very colorful. And a lot of people were accessing it from coffee shops, like from Uh, net cafes, not from their home computer. Yeah. That's another piece of this puzzle that's really absent is that a lot of the getting online in the 90s was not from home, but it was from the library or coffee shop or even the bar or pub or whatever, depending on where you lived. That's also true of Minitel. Mm. Yeah. We ask so about it Mini- then, yeah. yeah. Minitel, though, I had never heard of it somehow. And I mean, maybe you should just introduce it, but a, a few things I wanted to clarify is it was centralized, I believe. It was like a government initiative to make something that was like a central internet for France. And it also, though had its own sort of mini dot-com boom or something as it became a large market for which you could make things? Uh, Yeah, yeah. So Minitel was a project I worked on before this, and a lot of the materials for Minitel are in an online archive that I made with my collaborator at minitel.us. And then even the domain is kind of a joke, but it turned out that there really wasn't much research in English about this system that was so widespread in France as to become mundane. So there's this like another historical problem is that if you live in France, it's like 
yeah, Minitel, okay, you're going to like write a book about the VCR next. <laughs> like it's so every day. But if you didn't live there, you would have no idea about this. It was like this very weird kind of phenomenon in, with some limited cases. Because actually you find out that for about 10 years, at least once a year, a big magazine in the U.S. would be like, yeah. Minitel is booming in France. When are we going to get it? France Telecom sent a bunch of engineers to live in the Bay Area and try to start a Minitel-like network in San Francisco, which completely failed, except that they gave out terminals for free to a bunch of people. And some of those people threw warehouse raves. And so there's home video of a warehouse rave in Oakland in the early 90s with Minitel terminals Whoa. in different chill rooms. So you can like chat with people on the rave. And the audio is completely blown out, but you see the people like typing on the terminals. Wow. Okay, so you're getting edited. But the, the short story of the Minitel thing is it's both centralized and decentralized and it's both public and private and it this idea of videotechs comes from a vision of the future of media from the 70s which in france is characterized as telematique and it's like the convergence of all these different media forms television computing satellite communications and the idea of the minitel kind of was prompted by France feeling some competitiveness with other industrialized nations that their own telecommunications infrastructure was falling behind. I mean, this even part is like going to be alien to some listeners because like you could rent an apartment in France without knowing if there was going to be a jack in the wall to plug in your phone. And it was only in the 70s in the US that we started to get above like 95% penetration of telephone networks where like Anybody you meet would have a, a phone number. So France has this motivation to like update the telecommunications infrastructure. And the idea is like they don't want to just get to the state of the art, but go beyond. And that encompasses like lots of different things. But one piece of it is to build a nationwide data network that is going to be packet switched. And it doesn't use TCP IP. It uses a slightly different standard, but it's the same basic concept. So the phone network is getting updated, and then this digital network is getting built at the same time. And then Minitel is a like services-based platform that runs on top of both of them. And the Minitel actually refers to a little terminal that was like an 8-inch screen with a keyboard that flips up and a modem in it. And you would plug your phone into the Minitel and then the Minitel into the wall. And you pick up your phone and like dial a number and then listen. When you heard a sound, you put your phone back down and the Minitel terminal would like come alive and pictures it's and stuff would start French. appearing on it. It's a Minitel. It's so, it's yeah, like the whole it's so concept Michelle of it. Gond- <laughs> it's so How to design it so that it looks good in your house. Like the colors and stuff have to be a consideration because you're going to put it in your home somewhere. So there's a lot of like apocryphal stuff about Minitel history too. Like there's a story that Steve Jobs came over and saw the Minitel and then the Mac has like a handle in the top and the Minitel has a handle in the top and they are extremely similar. (laughs) So who knows? Like these kind of influence stories are sort of like the bread and butter of computer folklore. So anyway, the minute what's kind of neat about Minitel is that there's many countries, particularly in Europe, trying to do this at the same time. But only in France do they open up the edges of the network that anybody can make a Minitel service. There's like a process of applying to a government agency to get approved. But basically anybody who worked in the print media services got priority access. So like every major magazine and newspaper opened up a Minitel service on the side that could extend whatever their print media was. So that goes from Le Monde to Marie Claire, like all these different services. And there's a whole weird 
scam business that runs on the side where people will like create a fake newspaper with enough circulation that then you get over the hurdle and you get priority access to build a service and they call it like the ghost newspaper. And there's all different things. By 1985, it's all the kinds of stuff that we would see on the web in like dot-com era. So like buying train tickets and movie tickets, classified ads, online dating. Whoa. Whoa. So you can see the, the Minitel. So it looks like a very old CRT monitor where the keyboard flips up to cover the screen. I remember being my first time going to Europe in 1997, I think. I researched this online, like the fact that there were hostels. And this is when like every page would take like a minute or two to load. And I remember I found a friend in Potier and he was staying in this house and the Minitel had been inset into the wall. sort of custom built it into the wall and the keyboard was up. And I remember he pulled it down and I was just, my mind was just completely blown that this was a fixture of French houses. And I guess there were so many of them, you can buy them for like 20 euros on eBay. Oh, really? Because they made millions, right? Absolute mass production. So the key part of Minitel is that Anybody who is a telephone subscriber could go to the post office and get the terminal for Incredible. free. So by the late 1980s, like almost everybody had at least some like limited experience of using it. And, you know, part of the promise was to move a lot of state services that would like justify the initial investment. So one of the things that got moved over was the phone book and the electronic phone book was searchable. This like big online database. It could show you limited like directions, kind of a cartographic features. And it was free for the first few minutes. So many people did not venture into the like wilder world of Minitel because it cost per minute to use it. But everybody had at least used the phone book or registering for classes if you're a student. A lot of state services. Train tickets is like a classic yeah. example. But yeah, in the book, we document a lot of other things that were done on there. There was like home delivery kinds of stuff like you could order and someone would drive and buy the thing and bring it to your house. Like lots of stuff we associate with the web of the 21st century was happening on Minitel in the 80s. And part of it was because of that like public private piece, because the government ran the platform in the middle. They didn't really tell people on the edges what to do, but they would handle a lot of the accounting. So like basically if you used Minitel for like a few different things during the course of the month, all of those minutes would just be like collapsed into one line on your telephone bill and you paid that. And then the state, like France Telecom at the time, would distribute the money to the different service providers. So there was a degree of like anonymity and almost like anti-surveillance that was happening at that time where each different service provider wasn't maintaining their own database of like the users. The users had to go through this central directory service to get there. And then that's how all the billing happened. But that meant that a ton of young people could start services without having to deal with the money Ah. side. If their service got up and running, then they were just getting checks from the state for the people who were using it. And that's actually dramatized in a new show that came out last year that I think is called Transeskins Monique. That's like about the porn industry and like sort of adult Minitel services that grew up around it. Noted. I mean, I wonder, so then how were U.S. tech startup hopefuls in the 90s and in the 80s, how did they receive Minitel? Was it something that they thought, oh, we could do something better mm-hmm. or that's really interesting, we want to reproduce it? Like what was the conversation on the U.S. side about Minitel's success yes. or limitations? Yeah, telecom 
in the United States is running in the complete opposite direction in the 80s of liberalization and privatizing different components of the system, breaking up the Bell system as we came to know it so that long distance services and local services are operated and long distance is competitive. That's why we get those like long distance card companies that are advertised on TV through all of the 90s. There was an idea that was like, yeah, the Minitel is cool, but it's ultimately limited because it's like state controlled. And most people in the U.S. didn't have firsthand experience of it. So they didn't realize the extent to which there was this like openness around the edges of the network to create your own services. So the stereotype persisted like well into the present that people in Silicon Valley, if they knew about Minitel at all, would think it was kind of like a backwards closed system. And it's certainly ran against the prevailing ideology of like openness at all costs and a belief that like open unregulated markets would always produce better outcomes. So there were lots of Minitel like services that got started in the US and they couldn't grow. And there could be lots of reasons for that. One is certainly like an unwillingness on the part of the state to like kickstart giving away millions of terminals to people. That was just like a (laughs) non-starter. But also like the geography of the U.S. is so different than countries in Europe and France in particular. It would it would be really hard to like replicate that model across Texas. I mean, Texas is just enormous. And Texas is a place that there was some like efforts to create video tech like startups. I mean, in 1983, it really seemed around the corner. There is like a special issue of Byte magazine with video text on the cover that features Minitel and also Teledon, which is like the Canadian counterpart to it that has actually a lot of interesting media art stuff happening on it. But the US version gets as far as like Radio Shack sells a kit for a couple of years that has a cartridge, <laughs> like this kind of video tech thing. There's like Dow Jones had a service and Knight Ritter maybe, like one of the newswires had a service, but you probably were making a long distance call and it probably cost a lot per minute. But it does happen simultaneously with BBSs because 1983 is like a kind of early BBS boom. And it's partly because of Hollywood that 1983 is when War Games came out. And War Games is the first time that computers are like fun on in movies. There aren't as many films beforehand where computers are like a place where you can be kind of like a badass teenager. And War Games shows kids doing fun, bad things on computers. So a ton of kids get modems after that. I know that we should talk about Web3, but I did want to ask you one methodological question, or maybe it's more even an emotional question. As you are doing this research and as you were discovering these archives and you're speaking to people who some are probably in their later stage of life at this point, what personal responsibility did you feel to try to set up the rails for some kind of overarching archiving system. Because as you said, BBS culture, it is decentralized. And one of the things when we think about maybe this is a good segue to Web3 is who's responsible for these histories and how do you value them? And what happens when that history disappears, especially because so much of it is held in the human memory, the human body. I'm really curious how you process that. Yeah, it's a great question. And actually... There have been a lot of like really key people who've died in the time that I've been working on it. Oh, wow. You know, like Randy Seuss, who was one of the creators of the first like BBS, it's called CBBS, passed away in the last 10 years. And um, Sven Wallace, who's formerly known as Win Wagner III, who is the creator of Opus BBS, which is like an evolution of Fidonet that added a lot of like colorful graphics and also a requirement that any commercial users didn't pay him, but rather donated to an AIDS outreach charity. Wow. Because 
Wallace was HIV positive. So some of those folks died like during the course of working on the book. And that that it did have that emotional component of what you're saying of like, I have a lot of accountability to their memories and to the people who are still living. At the same time, on a methodological level, this book is written in conversation, like literally and metaphorically with Jason Scott from the Internet Archive, who previously made a documentary called BBS, the documentary, which you can watch online. Yeah. And he made that between, say, like 2000 and 2005. And in the time I was working on the book, he was gradually uploading all of his unedited interviews from that period to the Internet Archive. So that made me feel less of a need to interview people. And I focused a lot more on documents. So things like textfiles.com or um, hobbyist magazines or like the scant <laughs> archives of television broadcasts that mention bulletin boards or film depictions and things like that. In part, because I was thinking about like this imaginary reader who watches the BBS documentary and reads the book and they kind of like go together. That makes sense. Then I wonder, maybe this is the moment to pivot to Web3. I, yeah, I yeah. noticed, um, and perhaps this is in part because much of the research for your book was done probably during the 20 teens before Web3, as we would speak about it in 2022, came into being. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's not one mention of crypto, Ethereum, Bitcoin, Web3. It's just not part of the spectrum of the book. And yet you have this great line that says, recovering the history of dial-up BBSs helps us to imagine a world after social media. Yes. You also have another quote, the internet is an invention of our social imagination as much as an idea or a feeling as a technology. And so there's like this potential to like imagine a different kind of internet. And so I wonder like when you look at what's emerging out of these decentralized blockchain networks, what aspects intrigue you and which ones particularly concern you based on all of this prehistory information that you've gathered? Yeah. So you've definitely nailed like the main purpose of the book existing, which is there is a way I thought about the existing standard folklore as sociologist Tom Streeter puts it, like the standard folklore of the internet is something that's like ARPANET plus Silicon Valley equals web social media, blah, blah, blah. And that's like, if you just ask people on the street, that's what they'll tell you where the internet came from. And I was like, if you changed it so that the average person on the street thought of those things, but also like grassroots AIDS activists and things like that, we like add that to the mix. How would that change their level of satisfaction with status quo platformization of the web? Like all the different things we talk about, surveillance, censorship, ownership of, of materials, the financialization, would we have different expectations? Would we like make different demands of these institutions if we had this different history in mind, this different like folklore that we told ourselves about what the internet was about? And so I am really interested in Web3 in part because I think it is a place where people do articulate visions of the future. And I want this work to provide people with resources of like real networks that real people occupied and built and maintained over time that functioned under a very different political, economic, and technological regime than the platform era. And partly it's because we think of internet history as like going to the 1960s, but most people have only really been using the internet for everyday activities for the last 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. And so most people you would interact with have no firsthand memory of an internet without Facebook. Right. Like that is 
really shocking. And so every all of us on this call have some notion of like a period of time where Facebook was new and you signed on to it for the first time and you compared it to MySpace or something else. Messenger is like AIM or something like that. Most people can't make those comparisons. And so a lot of times it's not even just younger people because it's not about age. It's about your like position relative to power that they will try to imagine a future after Facebook from a blanks page. Like, okay, we're going to rebuild the internet go. And it's just like, it's going to be not Facebook. And that's the starting point. (laughs) Whereas here, whether it's Minitel or bulletin boards or something, FidoNet, we have all these previously existing systems that were smaller in scale. They happened at different times and people use different devices to access them, but they worked and they met a lot of the needs that we're articulating in the present. And they solved problems in different ways. So like one thing that I think is really important in terms of this comparison is Sometimes we think of online communities as like for-profit or not. They're like either commercial or they're non-commercial. Mm. And commercial is reduced to just venture capital, like Silicon Valley, scale as fast as we can, get as many people as we can, and then like exit. And that is such a narrow idea of what it takes to sustain these kinds of infrastructures. And I think the conversations around Web3 are often about like, What's another model that could be used to sustain these infrastructures? And in the bulletin board system case, those folks, as they would remind you all the time, paid their own bills. So they were not like a line in the computer science budget for a giant university. They were getting a bill every month from the telephone company, or if their hard drive died, they had to buy a new one and they had to figure out how to pay for that. How did they pay for that? Well, so most of these people couldn't get a loan from the bank because they did not look like they were going to become like a successful business. And many of them didn't think of themselves as a business. It was kind of like a turning point around 1990 or so that some number of bulletin board system people started to think like, well, this could be my career. This isn't my side gig or this isn't my hobby. This could be my full-time job. And some of that looked more like a small or medium-sized business. A lot of times it was like a person and their spouse or a couple friends working together. And there's lots of different examples of how to charge for this. Like, is it a membership fee? Kind of like the gaming club I mentioned. Was it a per minute charge? Was it passing the hat occasionally? Kind of like a proto crowdfunding model. Sometimes people threw house parties, kind of like a rent party in a loft, like (laughs) to pay for the next month of the service. And I think what's kind of striking for me about that is there are so many different models of commercialization that are possible that offer different kind of senses of like ethical commitments. Like what does it mean to be accountable? We can all agree this costs money to run. So how are we going to pay for it? We can like talk openly about money in a way that a lot of things that are happening in other spaces, either there's so much money that it's meaningless to talk about it. Like you're just completely flush with venture capital money and you're supposed to spend it as fast as you can. Or the money is like tied up in these larger institutional structures like a university or a a large military institution or something like that. So I'm really after thinking about these different models and I'm working on a spinoff project from this that's specifically about shareware. And shareware is like a dominant commercial business model for a period of time on BBSs, which was a response to the prevalence of piracy. And the idea was like, Small-scale software makers make a program, and then they give it away for free, and they say, you can try this, but the program is reminding you like that you ought to pay. Mm. And so 
you've probably seen these kinds of like try before you buy software models. Well, the idea was like they just weren't going to control distribution of the software. They were just going to remind you that you had a moral obligation to pay and try to create some feeling of like belongingness or togetherness or shared fate or however you want to think about it. I think that that intuition is somewhere baked into some of the kinds of Web3 models. Definitely. What does it mean to be independent is really on the table, both in this history and in the present. At some level, Ethereum is not like independent of anything in the global system, but it is independent in comparison to other ways of conceptualizing like the platform structured internet that predominates for most people. And in that sense, it's like a fascinating provocation. There's like a moment in BBS history that is really illustrative of this, which is from the perspective of like a really hardcore BBS person in the early 90s, they wouldn't have thought of the internet as like competition. They would have thought of the internet as like operating at a lower level in the stack that the internet was going to replace dial-up telephone network. So it would replace that like legacy bell system. And you would use the internet to get from your BBS to another BBS without paying long distance fees. And that vision of like a BBS internet hybrid did exist and like was operational for like a year or two. And then the BBS thing became vestigial and kind of like faded and the communities either disbanded or they were reformed on web boards or you know, chat rooms or whatever. And you could kind of see something similar happening with different sorts of communities or organizations or groups of people forming around Web3 projects where you can like swap out different pieces of it as needed without losing the whole network or the relationships that people are building. And that seems to be like one of the recurring promises over time around blockchain type projects, which is like, People have had this experience of like disruption in their communities, whether it was from people getting banned off of platforms or or like no more security updates for the game that they like or whatever the thing is. There's like some feeling of loss of control. And I wonder, it would be kind of interesting to put longtime community operator sysop folks into conversation with people trying to build Web3 projects to see what their, you know, like sage advice will be for people who have either had their own systems kind of like pulled out from under them or who survived, who managed to like migrate. I mean, one of the best known BBSs is definitely The Well. And The Well is a currently operating system with thousands of subscribers that has a web interface, but also a text mode interface. And the people don't know, like when you're talking to somebody, you don't know what interface they're using because they're just topping on topics. So yeah, those folks have survived a, f- a few different infrastructural changes. They even were bought by Salon at one point, and then like a group of users bought it back from Amazing. Salon. There's definitely some like, it's not really lessons to be learned because I think that's really trite. It's more like, what are we really talking about when we talk about ownership and independence? You know, like what are the boundaries of that? What makes it acceptable? Where are the thresholds? Things yeah, like that. and on what scale is one independent? Is it community independent? Is it the individual? Is it the network? Interesting to think about. I do find it interesting that like, I mean, I've never used Urbit. It's a weird yeah, I was corner of the ask, internet. Was but a I was it does also very ask much seem yeah. to be like uh, nostalgic for BBSs yeah. or something like that, just by the way it functions where you have to set up your own host. Right, node and server and, and yeah. there is though like the fediverse quote unquote 
They have, uh, you can set up your own like music streaming server that people can connect to. Or Mastodon also sort of works like this, I believe, where it's like a, a Twitter that people can host themselves. So first of all, yes, Mastodon and the Fediverse people are fully in conversation with this and regularly reference FidoNet as a model. Mm. Yeah, the Mastodon hubs that talk to each other and then the users connect, that's like the same network structure as FidoNet would be. And so that federated sense, that's a very direct comparison. Mm. Here's where I've been thinking about this comparison with blockchain stuff is that it is absolutely true that even people who are very curious about getting involved in these kinds of things cannot surmount the financial requirements Mm. to get involved. Yeah. So like I'm intrinsically motivated and I, in many ways, like could afford to just like buy tokens to like experiment and get involved in things. But there's like, it would be extremely hard for me to justify the amount of money that's required to like play around with certain kinds of systems that have been created over the last couple of years. And I understand there's lots of discussions of how to change that, but I thought there is something interesting in the like near term history of people who happen to get caches of Ethereum, like of Ether over the last few years, and then were able to be more playful with it versus people who did or didn't or dropped it or whatever, like otherwise are starting from euros or something and they're trying to buy their way in. And there is something similar to be said for like the BBS universe where BBSers, like the cost of entry is really high. You have to have a PC and a modem. And we do know that very, very few people had all of those things, especially the modem part. It's like a really expensive device that is not obvious at all from the outset of what it does for you. Yeah. And if you if you put it in comparison with like a printer or a joystick <laughs> right. or like a sound card or something like those are self-evident what they do. Whereas getting a modem would be, you need somebody to explain to you why you would want to have it. So I think there's kind of something similar there where like people who are super into BBSs would be like, everybody's going to get on this. This is so awesome. And then other folks would be like, yeah, that costs like $2,000 to get started, right. get that computer and figure all this weird stuff out like there is some kind of like similar symbolic but it's also really material boundary to getting involved and that's got a selection bias to it that's not random so like I think that's one reason that some of the web3 discourse is so polarizing Mm -hmm. because folks will be like I only encounter this online or from a really annoying person and I just can't understand why I should jump through all these hoops some of which cost as much of as like a month of childcare, for example, yeah. to get involved in this thing where the promise is like not exactly evident to them. Yeah. And yeah, requires an abundance of money and time or prior investment and time. And again, it's like a predominantly male space for better or worse. But also I think it's worth noting the baseline. I mean, even new models, which is like less monetarily focused than Web3 projects, we're still staking our professional income on running this system. This is the core of what we do. And so it is professionalized. And we both have like more than a decade each of experience in professional media systems. So even as like informal of an image as we may project, it is fundamentally different than BBS boards in that sense. It is still like run by people who are needing to make a certain baseline to be able to continue this project. And so then if you think of Web3 projects, 
projects in comparison. So I think I think the whole spectrum has been skewed when we think about what's possible and mm-hmm. what's DIY and what's altruistic in these spaces. Yeah. I mean, so like I looked at some of the Stuart Brand archive mm. and the well is seen as part of a portfolio of media activity, including publishing like the Whole Earth Review magazine every month. And there is like people who write for the magazine who post on the message board and the posts sometimes get reprinted in the magazine. There's employees, you know, they're trying to raise money and things like that. That seems like much more in line with what all is happening. And like, that's true. for example, there was a period of time where you like completely changed the structure of the discord, like swapped out yeah. the names of all the channels, archived a lot of things. The amount of labor and thought and care that went into that is evident. That's not something that happens by accident or like on the side of doing something else that like very clearly took so much labor to to produce that change and to like keep things going. And like there's so much evidence of the thought that goes into like, what's it going to mean to maintain this over time? Right. And there is an element of that that looks a lot like what the SysOp does because it requires sensitivity to the social component, but also to the financial and technological side. I mean, I think we're going to start calling ourselves the sysops of new models. <laughs> sysops, exactly. True, for real. But it just makes the most sense. It does, so actually. It's this weird, operation. Like, yeah. thing of like, what do we actually call ourselves? I guess host oh, also tracks, but yeah, in but, that sense. Yeah, but, yeah. But, uh, but also, I mean, not to say, we also have a team. There's a council. There's like a number of people who've been here for a long time who mm-hmm. I think last year when things got really crazy with the market hockey sticking that we said, hey, there's a private channel and we pose questions and problems and we get feedback and they've been really wonderful and instrumental to shaping the culture of the Discord and shepherding a good vibe and helping us think. We had a shadow server where we experimented with different ways of restructuring and what kind of downstream effects different restructures would have. Um, But you do realize at a certain point to maintain the amount of attention that's necessary to keep things running well, then real questions do come up. How do you monetize? Is it fair to be paying $8 for access to the Discord and only 5 for the podcast? For a student, that adds up and that could be a barrier to entry. Yeah, I mean, these questions, these economic questions are real. And then you start thinking, well, why not take money from a VC and have this kind of seeming freedom? All this stuff is on the table, right, of what's the best way to go forward, especially like in a, you know, a time when the creator economy is changing and there are the bot wars on Instagram and there there's the great post-COVID attention recession. And, you know, all, all of these things are changing. But it's helpful. We were watching the Andy Warhol documentary. And I mean, Andy Warhol himself was always in this state of doubt, always feeling like, am I reaching the people? Is what I'm saying making sense? And, you know, BBS boards as well were constantly renegotiating what new technology was available, where attention yeah. was going, where labor was going. So it's just part of what it is to work in digital networks is to constantly be recalibrating or media and re- reconfiguring that equation of money and time and labor and benefit and anything you'd like to throw out either here or elsewhere about how to do this better. Um, We were, we're very open to your uh, advice and critiques. I will say that. Yeah. You're making me think that we need something that's like a catalog of these kinds of systems that have worked or broken, broken down. Like something I'm always surprised that is not more widely known is that when AOL changed its pricing structure to be more of a flat rate than a hourly rate, they completely screwed all of the moderators because the moderators of the different systems were paid in time on the system. Wow. And now time was no longer valued at the same rate. And the moderators rebelled against the platform. And this was like a huge 
breakdown in how AOL functioned because they had relied on this layer of this like volunteer workforce who was getting paid in time. And then they made time not worth anything anymore. And those people flipped out. And then everybody covered this was in like Wired magazine. This is like a major thing that happened. And then that's kind of like lost in our collective memory that we've already (laughs) fought the fight that running communities is hard and like takes time and people want to like get something back for it. They don't necessarily want to get a paycheck and health insurance. They might, but like, it's not, they're not doing it just because it's fun. It's like, sometimes it's it's really the shit work of running the community. So that problem of like reinventing the wheel is frustrating to see for sure, but it is also like a motivation. That's something that we could be surfacing from the group. Like people who are on this discord, for example, have undoubtedly been members of many different communities who went through periods of change or upheaval. And it would be nice to have like a chronology of those events. Uh Uh-oh, but I see a group coming. (laughs) (laughs) I want that resource personally. So that sounds great. Well, in any case, Kevin Driscoll, thank you so much for your time today. We hope that we can continue the conversation because I feel like we've only sketched out the top layer of this map. The book is out everywhere, Yale University Press. Kevin is on our Discord. Kevin is on our Discord. If you are interested in speaking to him or adding him. You'll have, you'll, to find, ask, you'll, you'll have, have to ask around. You'll have to ask around, exactly. And you'll find your pathway. That's right. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Thank Ciao. You. Thank you for listening to New Models and a huge thanks to Kevin Driscoll for joining us. The Modem World, a prehistory of social media, is available now in digital and hardcover from Yale University Press, as well as Kevin's book with Julian Mayland, Minitel, Welcome to the Internet from the MIT Press. A reminder to boost new models on the algos with likes and stars and whatever, or write about us on your local BBS. Also, if you're in North America, we now offer content-only subscriptions to new models via newmodels.substack.com. See you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Lil Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com. For Web3 access, visit channel.xyz.